This is Gennar Lovelace, your co-host of But Are You Thriving? In this episode, I interview Elizabeth Gilbert, who has been an inspiration to me and so many friends for decades. Having met her via text from our mutual friends, Byron Katie and Stephen Mitchell, Liz came and stayed in our treehouse home in Nassara, Costa Rica. Her response to the introduction was like, yes, let's live together for a week. And she drove across Costa Rica to meet us. We then had a magical time becoming lifetime friends while Liz would often read excerpts from her forthcoming book like an excited artist. Spending time with her revealed more fully how she's an incredible creator of personal healthy patterning. And without further delay, here is the episode. Hello, everybody. I'm Gennar Lovelace, co-founder of Thrive Market. And today on the show, we have the best-selling author, Elizabeth Gilbert, here today to have a discussion about applying the practices of big magic, in her own words, in today's world. Elizabeth, so great to have you on the show. Thank you so much. Hi, Gennar. It's so nice to meet you at last. I, uh, I've been a huge fan of your work and we have many mutual friends in common and obviously familiar with some of the things, but just, just for the sake and benefit of our audience would love to ask some questions that are probably a little redundant for you, but just, just for a couple quick hits, I'm curious what you're focused on these days. By the way, you can ask me any question. It doesn't matter how many times I've answered it. If there's anybody in the audience who's never heard it then great. <laughs> Beautiful. Thank um, you. I, yeah. Don't worry about that. Don't worry about that. Play the hits. Ask all the questions. So what I'm focused on right now in my life is is really my spiritual path. That's been a big focus of my life for many years, but I, in the last four years, have become physically and emotionally sober as much as I can as a way of moving through earth school, as some of our friends call it, without being altered to see whether I can actually just sort of handle being a human being, having a human experience without having to take the edge off or numb or, you know, alter it in any way whatsoever. So that's been a really big deal and a really big part of my life. And I also just finished my, I think it's my 10th book, which is a novel set in Siberia in the 1970s and my friendships and traveling. I guess that's what I'm all about these days. Those are my, those are my things. That's a great portfolio. And thank you. <laughs> I have, I have many questions about just leaning into the discomfort of life and not numbing mm. yourself and all the ways that we uh, have coping mechanisms. And that's that I think that's a, a great area for us to explore. Before we go into that, would just love to hear again for our audience, like was there an inspiration or aha moment that really changed the trajectory of your life, your health, your wellness? I, yeah, I, I, I mean, I think there are multiple ones. And I think the ahas continue to roll out for as long as we live because we're constantly having ahas and hopefully learning from them and having truth revealed, changing our lives on account of that. And then here comes another one. And then here comes another one. And then here comes another one. And I think the humility that I experience a lot is I'm sort of like, well, how many more of these are there? 
you know, how many more, how many more moments are there going to be where I'm like, I can't believe I didn't know that. I can't believe I didn't get that. I can't believe I was still doing that unhealthy behavior. The OG one for me, like the primary one was when my first marriage fell apart at the age of 30, I had done everything I could to try to create a life that looked like what I thought I was supposed to do. Mm -hmm. I got married. I bought a house. We were about to settle down and have children. And instead of having children, I always say I had a nervous breakdown and I really did. Mm -hmm. And I went into a three-year spiral that anybody who's got eight bucks to buy a paperback of Eat, Pray, Love or has seen the movie already knows all about. Mm -hmm. But that's where, that's where it really began. Mm -hmm. There's a line in the Bhagavad Gita that says that I always quote that I love that says, it is better to live your own life imperfectly than to live a perfect imitation of somebody else's mm -hmm. life. Beautiful. And again and again and again, that is the lesson that keeps coming up for mm -hmm. me. Every mm -hmm. time I try to live my life according to the standards that were set to me by my culture and my family, mm -hmm. I get really sick. Mm -hmm. And every time I live a life according to my own intuition, I do well. Mm -hmm. But it's not easy to do that because you have to push back against a lot of pressure that mm -hmm. tells you that there's a certain way you have to be. Yeah. And it's really getting intimate with fear that gives us the, the strength to move through those places. I, I love what uh, Adi Ashanti says about courage, that it's not the absence of fear, but the willingness to persist in the presence of fear. And um, I can so relate to the sense of being humbled over and over again in the face of new lessons and, and wondering how the journey continues to unfold. And then there's this other side, which I'm sure you can relate to, is it's just more fun to be a student and just to learn all the time and to just kind of have that orientation towards life in general. I mean, that's what we are, you know? So I guess it's a question of, have we accepted that we're students or have we not accepted that we're students? Yeah. Because that's where the suffering comes in. My my friend Rob Bell, who I love very much, always guides people when they're having a really hard time and they're going through a shame spiral because they feel like they feel like they failed or that there was something they should have known that they didn't know. He always advises just getting a big sharpie and writing on your hand student mm -hmm. <laughs> and underlining it so that you can just remember like you're not meant to be the, you know, you're not meant to master this. Mm -hmm. Like as long as you're alive, these lessons are going to continue to arise and you can perpetually be a student. Mm -hmm. But yeah, em embracing that, I, I agree with you, is where the fun starts. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I've talked about this before, but I, I always find the times of greatest suffering in my life were immediately preceded by thinking I knew what was going on. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, there's a there's a little signal that goes out across the galaxy that says like hubris alert section seven, you know. Slap them oh, down. I, you know, I I used to think it was I'm joking, but I actually think it's more that once you get to the point where you feel like you know what's going on, I feel like you actually graduated from a certain level, and then they move you into the next level, which they they the guides the mystery the universe usually happens through trauma. Like there's a disaster and now you're now it's time to level up mm -hmm. and now it's time to level mm -hmm. up again. So yeah, when I start to feel like I've got this, <laughs> I'm usually like, oh boy, oh boy. Strap on oh, the seatbelt. 
Do I need to, can I just hang out here in fourth grade? Do I need to graduate to fifth grade? Because I know what graduation entails. It means like, we're going to give you something now that we think you can handle, which means <laughs> it's going to be rough for a while. Yeah. Massive <laughs> up-leveling. Yep. So tell us a little bit about a day in your life. Like, how do you start and finish your day? How do you create healthy routines for yourself? What habits have you stuck with that have been really powerful for you, for your own health, both physically and spiritually? You know, it's funny, before I answer that, I almost feel the need to make a disclaimer because the way that I live, like, I don't want it to sound like this is what anybody else has to be doing. Mm -hmm. Thank um, you. Thank you for and, calling that out. You know, like, and if there's anything, like, really take what you want and leave the rest. And also, I haven't lived this way my whole life, but it's more that like after a lifetime of trial and error, which is really what it's all about is I'm trying to figure out how to operate one of these things. Like this, this being a, a Liz, like I'm trying, how do I, I don't really know. Like they dropped me into this Liz suit and I've never had one of these before and I don't know how to drive it. I don't know how to operate it. Like, you know, and I crashed into a lot of trees along the way, figuring it out. So that's just the disclaimer because you know, even 10 years ago, if I had heard somebody answer the question the way I'm about to, I'd be like, what a jerk. <laughs> um, you know, but here's what I do. I, I get up really, really early and my day starts the night before when I decide to go to bed really early. Like that's, mm -hmm. which means I miss out on a lot of stuff that's mm -hmm. going on. But So what's early for you? Like I try to start getting, my friends never stop making fun of me for this, but I start, I try to start getting ready for bed around 8.30. <laughs> yeah. And I try to be in bed around like 9.30. And exactly I try to be, what, that's exactly my routine too. Yeah. yeah like I don't do well otherwise. No. And also if I don't do that, I'm also not that interested anymore of mm -hmm. anything that happens after about five o'clock, mm -hmm. but I don't operate well without that. And the most sacred, magical, precious, creative inventive hour of the day, hours of the day for me are the, a few hours before the sun rises because mm -hmm. there's this, you know, those are the moments where the portals open and the the deep silence is available mm -hmm. and the world hasn't woken up yet. And, and I always want to be with myself, mm -hmm. with my creativity and with my higher power at those, at that time. And I can't, you know, I like to have a full day before the, before the phone starts ringing and yeah. the phone starts ringing like at nine o'clock. So I get up like, you know, around five and I do two-way prayer and then I meditate, I do yoga, I go on a very early 12-step meeting, I reach out to my sponsees and my sponsor in that program. And then if I'm, that's a normal day. If I'm writing, which is not every day, because I write in seasons, mm -hmm. I just came out of a season of writing. My schedule then is even earlier. I get up at like 4.30 and I try to be at my desk by 5.30 or 6. And I usually have my I consider all those things to be my work. I usually have my work done by like 10 a.m., 10 or 11 a.m. And then I give the rest of myself to the day. I give the rest of myself to the world, to the phone calls, to the grocery shopping, cleaning my house, taking care of whatever the emergencies of the day are. But if I don't get an early start, I don't like the day to have me before I have had me. I don't like to check in with anybody else before I've checked in with God. I always feel behind unless I have a couple hours mm -hmm. to be very quiet and to tune into, um, you know, I what that. I love. Yeah, I love that invitation. I go to bed early as well. And I love the way that you framed. I start my day by what time I choose to go to bed the night before. And I feel like we have such a sleep crisis in our culture. And 
when I'm not well slept and I'm, I'm just like a subpar human being. And I'm curious, do you drink caffeine? Uh, not really. Sometimes I'll have, I make chai mm -hmm. every day for myself and I use a decaf black tea for that. So it's got a little caffeine in it. And sometimes when I'm out and about and traveling, I'll have a cappuccino, but I usually, I mean, I like the taste of those things, but I usually get a decaf. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Again, I sound like such a what, so, 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 such a jerk. Okay, so so let, let's let's just lean in. Let's just lean into that for a second. Why do you think that sounds like such a jerk? Because it's so perfect. It's like so disciplined. Uh, yeah, I you know I don't know what it is. I mean, I I think it's a little bit. I think that maybe where am I getting this? Some sort of an idea that I think I'm better than other people because I don't drink alcohol or caffeine or I get up early and it's I not do that yoga. You, it's not that you think that. You're just worried. You're just you're saying that as a disclaimer because you worry others might think that you think that, right? I think so. And I think, you know, and I'm also worried that like perfectionism and and I just don't want anybody to think they have to do this. Like, you know, and I wrote, and I also want people to know that I wrote like seven books in my life before I lived this way. So mm -hmm. this isn't also, this is also not necessary. I wrote books when I was like, it, when I was being a subpar human, when I had hangovers, when I was, you know, so you can actually create and live in other ways. It's just that I don't want to anymore. Mm -hmm. Like I, I don't want to, it's hard enough for me. It's hard enough for me to get through a day in earth school. I'm super sensitive. I'm anxious and emotional and I need a lot of stabilizing, mm -hmm. um, in order to be able to just even have a good day, <laughs> like even have a regular day. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, I, I, I like taking care of my mental health is a, is a really big deal for me. Yeah. It's not just my physical health. I can be dislodged from my center really easily if I don't do this self care. So, but yeah, thank you for pointing out my. <laughs> my insecurity about it. But uh, this is just what I have to do to be okay. And um, that's what I'm trying to be. Yeah. I mean, I think it's beautiful to like know that about oneself. And I'm such a sensitive creature, you know, like it just doesn't take very much to disrupt me. And, uh, and then I find myself spending hours just processing and getting back to that place of maximum availability to life. So I, I like I, that. That's a nice way to put it. Maximum availability to life. I yeah, love that. Yeah, I can relate to everything you just shared. So in 2015, you published Big Magic, Creative Living Beyond Fear, where you shared your wisdom and unique perspectives on creativity and how to inspire readers to create the life that they've always imagined. The book now is almost eight years old. And before we dive in, Again, for our audience, we'd just love if you would share a rundown of Big Magic, what inspired you to write the book. So I always say Big Magic was the book I thought about for the longest before I wrote it, and then I wrote it the fastest. I thought about the ideas that are in that book for well over a decade, well over a decade. I've kind of been thinking about it my whole life. Some of you may have seen my TED Talk. I gave a TED Talk about creativity. And after I gave that talk, a lot of people were coming to me and wanting more on that. So in a way, the book is a little bit of an expansion of, of that conversation that I had. What I'm trying to dismantle in Big Magic is a cultural paradigm that is very modern, and by modern, I mean the last couple hundred years, very Western, by which I mean that it came out of a Germanic Calvinist culture and very male. Um, 
which is that all these sort of German romantics invented this idea of what a creative is, that we have somehow decided in our culture is what it means. And that story is suffering. Suffering, grandiosity, anguish, being at war against your art, maybe dying from it, living a life of separation, isolation, being the lonely artist in the garret and <laughs> drinking absinthe in the garret in Paris with that no money to pay your bills. You know, it's very romantic, like capital R romantic, like German romanticism romantic. And I think it's bullshit. I think it's really unhealthy. I don't think it's how human beings have created for most of human history. I think it's defiling of something that is very sacred. And it's also based in lack. It's based in war, lack, struggle, individualism, all the things that are actually currently destroying our world. And, and in fact, creativity is a gift that was given to us by the mysteries of the universe. We're the only species on the planet who seems to have it. It flows in great abundance. It's our shared inheritance. It's our birthright. You can tell this because, first of all, all of your ancestors were creative. Everybody that you ever came from for hundreds of years was making things, building things, shaping things, cooking things, fixing, you know, everybody was creating constantly, but certainly before the era of mass culture and children do it instinctively. And that's the way that you can tell that it, it runs through our lifeblood. And there's a way to engage with it, what I call the big magic, the big mystery, that instead of being a war, and instead of being about grandiosity, and instead of being about brutal individualism, is about belonging and connection and surrender and curiosity and pleasure and, and, and courage and delight, a word that you will never hear any German romantic say. <laughs> so big magic is really an argument, a case for delight. And even to consider that creativity is a spiritual practice and that it's something that was given to us for our joy, not for our suffering. I love that. And I'm curious, I very much am constantly having to excavate unexamined and unconscious assumptions that life has to be hard and difficult and painful. Uh, and um, I'm curious how you reconcile the kind of beauty of what you just shared around the essence of big magic with this concept that you shared at the beginning of the show where you said that as soon as we kind of like start to understand a certain level, the universe hands us a new lesson to up level and typically in the form of trauma. And like, how, how do you see those things fitting together? Mm, that's a really, really good question. I want to think about it to make sure that I don't just start talking before I have an idea, which is something that I do often. I reconcile it by saying there's something very interesting going on here that is beyond my capacity to understand. That suffering and the awakening that comes through pain does seem to be an inherent feature of human consciousness and seems to be something that people have talked about and explored and examined and had to find ways to live through and mm -hmm. understand mm -hmm. Well, certainly since written literature, right? It seems to be universal across culture that the first noble precept of Buddhism, that life is suffering, I think that's a little bit different than German Romanticism, which says, move in, mm -hmm. <laughs> mm -hmm. have that be your mailing address. You stay in that, mm -hmm. um, that, that you are not a legitimate artist unless 
you are constantly suffering. Certainly don't try to get out of it. Mm -hmm. Certainly don't try to make peace with it or friends with it or understand it or do anything that would alleviate it. Um, and, and go into a, a, like a dysfunctional codependent relationship with suffering rather than going into a relationship with suffering that says, well, this is really interesting. One of the things I talk about in Big Magic is how disaster can often be, for me, my levels of disaster and chaos and terror and panic can often be mitigated by just introducing the word interesting. Oh, that's interesting. This is interesting. I didn't see this coming. <laughs> this is an interesting development rather than this is a disaster. Um, oh, this is interesting. My friend Martha Beck has been doing a lot of research recently on how um creativity is actually on the mirror side of the part, the other side of the part of the brain where fear comes from. And creativity is governed by curiosity and it's actually impossible. It's been shown now in, in neuroscience. It's impossible to be in both centers at the same time. Interesting. You can't be in fear at the same time as being curious. You can really, it's a toggle switch. Only one of them can open. And so looking at your struggles from a place of curiosity stepping back at it from a distance, from a place of creativity. What is this want? What is this thing asking me to become? What is this disaster asking me to become now? Mm -hmm. Rather than becoming married to the pain, I think is, is how I would reconcile the difference in those things. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that this is uh, probably one we're going to talk about quite a bit when we see each other in person, because I, I think the subtleties of that one are super interesting. And uh, I think the the pieces that I kind of pick up from the way you uh, shared that distinction, you know, you know, talking about kind of the the Buddhist orientation around it, you know, that the human vessel, the human instrument, you know, the nature of life is that we're going to have to say goodbye to everyone and everything we love, and that's the nature of the the human experience. No, nobody gets out alive with their physical bodies and their identities. Mm -hmm. And so that backdrop in of itself creates a very dramatic context of vulnerability and trauma. And then what I think you're speaking to though, is this kind of like state of consciousness that has permeated where we are, the language and conditioning that puts us into a state of really endless war with ourselves, each other, and the planet. And I love what you share about how fear and creativity can't exist at the same time. I mean, I have so much fear in my own life from trauma. And, you know, when it comes on, it's just like, you know, all the hormones are rushing and flooding and all the fight or flight systems are in play. And it's uh, pretty, pretty amazing when it comes online. And I, it's powerful. It's powerful. You know? <laughs> it shuts and, everything down. Yeah. Except, except save yourself. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And, and then there's this also like this subtle addiction to creating those kind of like very intense experiences because we, when we're used to living that way, we think that that's how we're supposed to live. And then we look for situations to unconsciously, we look for situations to, to reaffirm and recreate it. So we're, we're now in 2023. And we're living in a post-pandemic world where the state of play of the human experiment is pretty spectacular. 
And uh, <laughs> what a time to be alive! <laughs> it's like that. It's like that Chinese curse, you know. May 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 you live in interesting times. Yeah, it's interesting. <laughs> we, we, we we have front row seats to the most interesting, spectacular theatrical play of the human experiment, and I think a lot of us are living with fear. We deal with a lot of different experiences of isolation. And I'm curious how you feel big magic can be a service to a world that seems to be really struggling with the relationship with fear. Mm. I'm just going to bring it back to the very tiny, intimate, personal scale. I was a really scared kid, and I had reason to be. And I grew up in a very high-pressure household, and I didn't feel safe. And when I would color and draw, I mean, I would have never had the language as a seven-year-old to say this, but it was a sedative for me. And I mean, I can actually embody it even when I remember it. I can remember the calmness of coloring, just using color and making shapes with it and drawing. When I was going through my partner, Rea's cancer and her death and a lot of drama that was around that situation in addition to just what you'd expect, I rediscovered that it still worked, that getting some crayons mm -hmm. and some big paper notebooks like that a little kid would love mm -hmm. and getting on my hands and knees and like I would actually just hold the crayons in my fist like I did when I was even too little to hold a crayon properly and making shapes with color mm -hmm. had the same effect on my 48 year old body as it did on my eight year old body mm, beautiful and when I sing karaoke with my friends which is my like number one most favorite hobby. <laughs> the first time I invited one of my friends over, we do like Sunday karaoke brunch at my house and they bring their kids and we just sing, which is something human beings have done for most of time is sing together mm -hmm. in groups. It actually has been shown to stabilize the vagus nerve. Mm -hmm. And like when you sing, you breathe together. Like we, we, but you know, of course we're singing like journey and, and, and you know, we're not singing hymns, but we're singing anthems. Mm -hmm. I remember my friend Johnny saying at the end of it, the first time he said, that just released something in me that I didn't even know needed releasing. Mm -hmm. Like singing, even joke singing, you know, just released something. These activities that seem to be hardwired into us to draw, to tell stories, to sing, to move our bodies and dance and rhythm actually can save us. I don't know. I'm not, I'm not grandiose enough in my thinking to sit here and tell you that it will save the planet. I don't know where we're at with that. <laughs> you know, like that's a hundred percent beyond my pay grade. Mm -hmm. But while all of this is happening and we're here, wouldn't it be useful? This is something that I always think like, wouldn't it be useful to be somebody who's not in a panic state. Wouldn't it be helpful to the people who are around you, no matter how big the crisis is, whether it's the crisis of climate change, whether it's the crisis of addiction in your family, mental illness in your family, being fired from a job, whatever the, there's going, these dramas are going to arise. Wouldn't you like to be one of the people in that play who's not 
a wreck, mm-hmm. an emotional and psychological wreck, wouldn't that maybe make you be able to be of greater service? Wouldn't that make you be able to see possibilities that other people can't see? Well, if I know that in order to be at that place, I have to be relaxed. And if I know that these ancient arts actually relax me, then why would I not practice them in order to maybe be of better service, even if the world is 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 dying. Wouldn't it be nice to have a hospice person on hand who's calm while the world dies? <laughs> you know, like if that's what's happening, like how can I show up to be of service to whoever is around me so that I'm one less person who needs to be in the emergency room, mm-hmm. right? And if the arts can do that, then then let's do that. Yeah, I, I love the simplicity of that. So just kind of distilling that a little bit, I think what you're sharing is just finding simple ways where we give ourselves permission to simplify our human experience and express in creative ways and creating the space for that and the ways that that really calms and regulates the nervous system. Yeah. If you go to a pre-industrial culture, everybody makes art. Everybody sings, everybody weaves, everybody paints, everybody carves, everybody dances. Mm -hmm. Like you go to Bali, I mean, Bali's now industrialized, but you go to Bali and they have these things called the banjar, the village banjar, which every single day, everybody in the village gathers under this pavilion and they have this orchestral gathering of music and singing and chanting. And they've done that every day for thousands of years. Like, and there's, and nobody sits it out. Nobody says like, oh, I don't sing. You know, I don't play an instrument. Like everybody's in that, Mm -hmm. like everybody's in that together. So I think it's been given to us as a gift to help bring our nervous systems into beauty, which helps bring us into harmony, which will help us to actually be able to show up as a helper rather than somebody who needs to be helped all the time. Mm -hmm. Because I'm so neurotic, my whole life's purpose, I believe, is to learn how to regulate my own nervous system so that I don't need so many resources being poured into me to keep me alive you know, um, so that then maybe I can actually, as we say in the rooms, graduate from hurting to healing to helping. Um, and I can't be a helper if I'm the one who constantly needs to be rescued because I'm, I'm such a wreck. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love that. And the Balinese culture is still so intact at that level. I mean, I, I used to have a, a jewelry business with my mother and we had a lot of amazing craftspeople in Bali working with us. And I would go into like the, a family compound in one of the carving villages and it would be 25 generations of carvers in that family. And I'd be sitting there with the grandfather and the, the father and the son and the daughter and the granddaughter, and they'd all be there listening to the project and all be working on the carvings. Like the depth of creativity and pervasiveness in that culture is absolutely amazing. And you see it, right? Like, I mean, stress has now been exported because our culture is a very good exporter of stress because we've exported our cultural values to places like that. So my Balinese friends have now learned the word stressed. (laughs) And they're like, I'm so stressed. I'm so, I'm like, oh man, I wish we'd never come here. I'm sorry. You know, but like they had a pretty good system for, for handling that. Yeah. I love what you said about you know, the attunement to regulating your nervous system. And I can totally relate to that, you know, because I, I had so much 
very early on survival trauma and sexual abuse and things like that that happen and you know we all get our deck of cards and so like for me my 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 nervous system you know, I'm always looking for the the next shoe to drop. Where's the next crisis coming from? And, you know, even like I tell people that work with me, please never send me a text message that says, can you talk? You know, at least, at least like, oh, yeah. at least like send, yeah. send me a message like, can you talk about this thing so that I don't make up a bunch of stories about the thing? And so, you know, I, I struggle with this because, and I'm curious what your perspective is on it. There's a part of me that, which I'm still cleaning up these unconscious ideas that that level of attunement to my nervous system is extremely indulgent behavior. And who am I to do that in a world where so many people are just struggling to get by? And then the other aspect of that is like the more I get attuned, the more sensitive I become, which is almost like a it's a virtuous cycle and a vicious cycle because the, you know I'm simultaneously more available, but I'm also a little bit more vulnerable at the same time. Mm. And so I'm curious mm. how you how you think about those things. Oh man, I I hear you. I hear you. Oh God, I don't know if I have a a universal answer for that, other than that I know that I am of no use to anybody when I'm wrecked. Yeah. I mean, I've shown that, like I've seen that. I can't help anyone until I'm pretty stabilized. And so that's what makes it be a public service. <laughs> My guru's guru in India, where I studied, used to say that meditation is the only thing you can ever do that's not selfish. It has no selfish end. Mm -hmm. The calmer you become, the more likely you are to be able to be of service, even if it's to be of service, not losing your shit on mm -hmm. someone. Mm -hmm. Or in my case, as a lifetime blackout codependent, one of the ways that I've stabilized my nervous system is finding somebody who will stabilize it for mm -hmm. me. Right. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to latch on to someone and I'm going to be like, it's your job now. Mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. you know, you are now in charge of my heart. You are now in charge of my well being. You have to say all the right things to me to make me feel safe. You have to do everything to create an environment where I can actually not feel like, um, I'm on a battlefield. If I'm insecure, you've got to fix it. Right. And that's me making another person into a drug, making another person into a Xanax mm -hmm. for me right? Which is something that I've tried to do in my relationships, which is essentially using someone, right? And part of the emotional and physical sobriety that I am aspiring to, my definition of sobriety is I didn't use anything today. Mm -hmm. I didn't use anybody today. Mm -hmm. And using somebody can also be taking something out on someone, um, because you're so unstable. A road rager driving around honking at people and screaming at people is using those people to get their anger out. And so that's why I think for me, if I'm going to be a safe person for other people to be around, I have to put a lot of hours a day into bringing my nervous system down to a level where I'm not going to be put anybody else in, in harm's way, whether it's by yeah, exploiting them or using them or blaming them or or, or, or acting them. unconsciously in a way that causes unnecessary pain and trauma for them. Yeah. If we want to be the place where suffering stops when it reaches us, like which is what I really, really want, 
I don't want to be a person who perpetuates suffering. I'd like to be a person where like the suffering comes at me and it ends there. You know, I don't then like take it on and then pass it along. I have to do a lot of work. I think there's a thousands and thousands and thousands of year history of people realizing that, that I've got to stabilize myself and then I can show up and maybe Mm -hmm. I won't cause it. and, And then, and then from there, be a benefit to others in a joyful, yeah. embodied way. Uh, yeah. 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 To be yeah, I love that. I mean, I, I, there's this, uh, you know, I'm going to butcher the Dalai Lama quote, but, you know, he talks about uh, this. It's two kinds of selfish humans. There's the selfish human that's just does everything for themselves. Uh, they live a, a lonely, desperate life. And then there's the wise, selfish human that recognizes they are in a relational field and the more they give, the more they receive. And, um, you know, I think uh, it's such an interesting, just like I really relate to that piece around just not wanting to participate in causing more suffering and and just knowing you know i don't i don't have a good answer to the question i just asked you i was i was i was hoping you were going to give me a xanax but you didn't <laughs> uh, <laughs> so uh, I, i'm very I'm, I'm very, very disappointed <laughs> but uh, uh, I'll, I'll i'll take that out with you later when we see each other <laughs> uh, uh, but it's really remarkable when i'm tired when i'm don't feel good in my body when I've eaten too much sugar, when I'm not getting exercise, when I don't give myself time and space to be creative or just enjoy life in in of itself. You know, I end up acting unconsciously and being hard and and causing suffering around me. And I think that the invitation that you are offering is is really beautiful. And look, we we have no idea where we're going in terms of the human experiment. And uh, at the end of the day, all, all that we really get the privilege to affect is how we show up in the world. And I really, I really love the way that you're inviting that, the simplicity of that and the permission to really get tuned to, to that deeply. I think we're gonna need some calm people because yeah. hard days are coming. You know, at every level of our lives, you know, there's a, you've probably met them. I mean, you know, we know some of them mutually, but there's a couple people in all of our lives. I'm sure people listening to this have met a few. They walk in a room and you exhale because you're like, oh, thank God this person's here and it's not going to be as bad. It doesn't mean that the crisis is over. Whatever the disaster is that's happening is still happening, but there's a calm Mm -hmm. person there. And and that's a great, great service. And the fact that I spend four hours a morning getting myself calm means that I can do what I do, which is I kind of spend the rest of my day in service. But I can't do it unless I, I I would burn out very quickly unless I unless I had that. Yeah, it's so so interesting. You know, I I, I can so relate to that because I've fallen in the classic trap of martyring myself in the pursuit of impact-oriented projects. And, you know, even when we were in the early days of starting Thrive Market, it was like such a paradox and such a like state of hypocrisy that I'm, you know, helping birth this thing with this amazing team of human beings. And we're still, you know, we're still very, you know, still very early in our journey, but the early days were extremely precarious and, and difficult. And I was 
probably the un most unhealthy I've ever been in my life, trying to birth the platform to help people be healthy and, and live, live a thriving, thriving life. And, you know, it's like, wasn't sleeping, acid reflux, my relationship was falling apart, you know, just like, just all of the, the physical systems were shutting down. And I, I'm curious, just like at a purely physical human body perspective, what are some of the things that you do to kind of cultivate your own health and wellness from diet and other types of practices? You know how Byron Katie always says, like, as she was awakening, things started to leave her. She didn't mm -hmm. give it up. They left. Remember she said, like, cigarettes just left and alcohol left and overeating left. I think for me, coming into sobriety four years ago, it's been interesting for me to watch as things have left. And I think it's because I'm now more attuned to generally trying to be well, or not even just... There's a feeling I can't feel well when this is around, <laughs> like whether it's a person, a place, a thing, a substance, you know, like this is not conducive with me being okay. So I can't have this anymore. So just in the last year, sugar has left, which is mm -hmm. bananas. Cause I'm, that was the one thing I always said I would never be able to put down. I was like, I can put down alcohol. I can put down drugs. I can put down acting out in all sorts of ways, but I can't put down sugar. I mean, mm -hmm. sugar is sugar. <laughs> um, and I think, I think though, for many of us, um, it was our first addiction. You know, we're obviously hardwired to become addicted to it. It's a substance that's incredibly rare in nature. And when our ancestors found it, they got as much of it as they could. And now it's abundant. And, and I just have realized that sugar is a toggle switch mm -hmm. for me. I can have none and I mm -hmm. don't crave it or I can have a little bit and then it's all I want. It just sets off, it does something to my brain. It does what it's supposed to do. It does exactly what it's supposed to do to my brain. It tells me to go get more. And I used to satisfy those cravings, but now I realize that like, oh, I can't satisfy a sugar craving because it doesn't get satisfied. It actually, like all my unhealthy cravings, when I go out and I get the thing that satisfies the craving, all it does is create a deeper hole where mm -hmm. I need more of it. And so, yeah, that one's gone. I mean, it's very rare that I have it at all. So, do you have do you have fruit sugar? Uh, I'll eat, yeah, I'll eat fruit. It doesn't mm -hmm. do the same thing to me. Um, like I had blueberries and cranberries in my oatmeal this morning, and it didn't make me start digging through my cabinets to find more blueberries and cranberries. But you know, you give me you give me a piece of cake, I'm gonna eat the entire like my serving size for a Fig Newton is the whole container. My serving size for there's no such thing as one Oreo for me. There's just it's like I I've never understood I mean there are people who can do that. I actually just can't do that. A serving size for me of Oreos is when the Oreos are all gone. And then I will want to go to the store and get more of them. So that's gone. Um and that's been a really big game changer. And I'm starting to eat I'm like I'm eating less and less and less meat and I feel like I'm getting the call. I'm just like, oh I think meat is leaving. I think, <laughs> I think it's leaving. I think because of, I love what the Dalai Lama says, like, you know, a good reason not to kill animals is that they don't seem to like it very much. <laughs> it's mm -hmm. such a sweet way to say it, but they really don't seem to like it very much. And I mean, I like it, but mm -hmm. they don't seem to like it. So, um, so that's going away. I don't have it in the house anymore. Sometimes I don't like to be, 
I don't like to be rude when people feed me food they've made. I eat it, whatever it is, um, but I I won't order it. And do you eat eggs? I do. I eat eggs, but I have friends who have chickens, so um, I eat their eggs. And I eat. I haven't given up half and half yet because uh-huh. it's a <laughs> it's a great pleasure of my life. But yeah, that's those are all things that are changing, and it's happening very gradually. It's not like I woke up one day. And I made a big resolution because I've made resolutions don't seem to work for me. They always come from my ego. They always come from my will. I think what works for me is getting in tune, uh-huh. getting quiet, uh-huh. getting still. And then I'm told what to do or it just uh-huh. becomes clearer. You know, like um, that's what happened with me in alcohol where it was like, I, you know, I just started working on taking care of myself and meditating a lot and praying a lot. And then it was like, oh, this isn't benefiting me. I think I don't. I think I don't use alcohol anymore. Oh, I think it's gone. I think this is not for me. It's not helping me. It's not helping me with the mental clarity and the emotional clarity and the spiritual clarity that I want. And um, it makes me make impulsive decisions mm-hmm. that can hurt me and other people. So um, yeah, those are the things. And I do yoga, but I've, I've had a, a transformation with yoga also recently, which is turning from using it as a way to try to make my body look a certain way um, to trying to do yoga as a way to feel mm-hmm. um, and and to actually feel yoga rather than do yoga, like to actually try to be present to it and use it as a, as a spiritual practice rather than as a, like, I want to have Michelle Obama's arms. Of course I do, but that isn't maybe the best yeah, use of my I, life. I, uh, <laughs> I, I, I also was a like, you know, power yoga, vinyasa, ashtanga yogi addict for many years. Now I, I mostly do like very, either like very active stretching where it's just like the, is working with the muscles or very yin where it's just like, but not like I've really backed off of like the the intense yoga practice. Um, and, Don't you uh, feel good? There's nothing Americans can't take and turn into something that's bad for you. It's also just like the, the like, you know, the bigger. <laughs> Even yoga, they're like, we're going to overdo it. There's nothing we can't just overdo. Just the bigger is better, yeah. the pervasiveness of that kind of orientation to everything. And I just feel now less is more in every aspect of my life. And just, just how do I slow everything down? How can I be more tuned? How can I make better decisions from that place of being calm and being healthy and relaxed? And, and I feel very imperfect in that intention. And I, like we said at the top of the show, I'm constantly humbled by the ways I engineer unconscious behavior. But it's, I think the pervasiveness in our culture. And look, there's a lot of economic incentive to have a system that says bigger is better, right? I mean, you sell more products, make more money. It's just permeated every aspect. And and then the vanity culture that comes along with that in terms of the bling bling and being a billionaire and whatever, you know, just like all of that. It's just, it's so pervasive. And what I what I hear and love about your work and your transmission is this profound invitation to really get to know our authentic selves in a state of calm to create conditions where we give ourselves tremendous permission to explore those ways of regulating our nervous system through creativity and how that just really leads very naturally to 
a better life and, and a better world. And it's just, just such a beautiful message. I'm really, really grateful for your work and all the lessons that you've had to overcome, that you've had to breathe love into to find yourself in this place where you get to share from such a refined experience. I know we're running out of time here, so I just want to quickly ask you a couple closing questions. What does thriving mean to you at this point in your life? Hmm. Oh, wow. It means living free from fear. That's the simplest mm -hmm. thing. I've been so governed by fear and so mm -hmm. limited by fear. And I don't mean being fearless in some sort of like macho Navy SEAL, like kick this day in the ass, show it who's boss kind of way. I just mean like I've been terrified my whole life of what people are thinking of me. Am I loved enough? Am I approved of? Am I doing it right? Am I in trouble? Is somebody mad at me? Am I going to lose this? Have I, have I made a huge mistake? Am, is everything about my life wrong? You know, those fears, those fears which can't really be conquered by doing macho things like jumping out of an airplane isn't going to take away my fear of mm -hmm. what people think of me. <laughs> you know, um, these are like deep, deep, fundamental fears that crush my ability to see life as anything other than a battlefield where at any moment I can make one false move and be completely ruined. You know, like that's how I, that's the emotional state that I lived in for most of my life. And so thriving to me means finding a way to set that down and to move into a space where I might actually enjoy the day where I might actually be able to see beauty in myself and others, where I might actually be satisfied by less and rather than needing more, and where my nourishment comes from from within rather than needing to make people pour into me in order to yeah, feel like beautiful. I'm all right. And, and as a follow-up to that, what areas do you feel like you would want to change in your life to thrive more at this point? I think honestly, <laughs> it's the belly of the beast. I, I would love to be free from any anxiety surrounding my family of origin, mm -hmm. worrying for them, worrying about them, trying to please them, trying to make it all work, um, like trying to live my life in some sort of a way that everything is fine with all of that, you know, all of the work and the struggle that I've done my whole life to try to, to try to make everybody be okay. I would love to be very, very, very free from that. And to really be able to believe that everybody gets to have their own journey. Nobody has to understand anybody else's. Nothing is owed. You're allowed to have a private life. You're allowed to choose chosen family. You're allowed, you know, all of those sorts of things. So that's kind of, mm -hmm. to me, that's the hardest because there's, you know, there's a lot of pressure that comes from cultural and familial expectations around family. And so I would just love to be free from the constant anxiety that I'm, I need to be doing something different involving all of them for everything to be better. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> 
and to just find an ind- like almost a separate piece to find an independent, a, a true mm. emotional autonomy to be okay no matter what anybody else is doing. And the closer they are to me by blood and relation, the more, the more vulnerable we are. I want to be yeah. the more yeah. vulnerable yeah. I am to losing my serenity. Yeah, um, because as they always say in the rooms, the reason your family can push your buttons is because mm-hmm. they installed them. <laughs> they know where they are. <laughs> um, and as Ram Das said, if you think you're enlightened, go home for Thanksgiving, yeah. see how that goes. So yeah, I would just, if I could find freedom, real, real, real emotional autonomy in that realm, I don't think there's much less for me to be too scared of. Beautiful. Honestly. Thank you so much for sharing your work with us. And uh, just, just really, really deeply appreciate that we share the planet together and that you get to share your creativity and your journey with all of us. I really, really deeply appreciate it. Thank you so much. My great, great pleasure. Thank you so much. And I'm looking forward to meeting you in person soon. Thank you. Bye. This podcast represents the opinions of the hosts and the guests on the show. The content here is for informational purposes only. Please consult your healthcare for medical questions or advice. Enjoy the show.